A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I want to talk quickly about the keto diet. Rubbish. I'm Tim Spector. Best-selling author and medical professor. With over 1,000 original articles published in the world's top journals. What would be the biggest pieces of advice you'd give in terms of being able to lose weight? Um, Should we be skipping breakfast? Well, food is complicated, our bodies are complicated. The key bit is for your gut is to reduce ultra-processed foods. The average person isn't going to do well long-term on a keto diet. They can mix these chemicals to fool mm. your brain in a way that we've never evolved to do. Go on, break the internet. Okay, see so... Welcome back to Working Hard, Hardly Working, the podcast. I'm not gonna lie, everyone, this episode turned my whole life on its head. I have to change my entire life, which is a real pain, but... You know, these things have to be done. Tim Spector, what a scientist. I feel like every single thing that I just learned was more than I learned in my entire school career and I had fun doing it. So that's nice. That's enjoyable for me and hopefully enjoyable for you as well because I feel like this is one of those episodes. I've had a few podcast episodes that I've listened to that I've literally sent to every single person I know. And I know that sounds like just me telling you to send my podcast to other people, but fucking hell, this episode literally turned everything I know about food on its head. And if you see me eating entirely differently, then mind your business, but also you will see why in this episode. So I hope you really enjoy it. Get out your pen and paper, get out your notes app, write some of these things down because this will change your life. Do we really know what we should be eating? Multi-award winning expert Tim Spector argues that we might not. Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London and honorary consultant physician at Guy's and St. Thomas's, he aims to point us in the right direction so we know the hard truths behind food fads, dieting, nutrition and gut health. Having written five books including the bestsellers Spoon Fed and The Diet Myth, he is one of the most cited scientists in the world. His research aims to debunk eating myths and answers the most important questions like should we be calorie counting, what should we be eating for our gut health and why do most diets fail? Very excited to have you after your long cycle here. Long sweaty cycle. Yeah. Yes. Do you do that every day? I used to pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously don't if I'm working at home. Right. But uh, yes, going to the hospital, that would be my normal, my normal journey. So um, yeah, I miss it a bit. Yeah. It's a nice routine to have beginning, end of the day. I want to go to the start of your career. Give us like a, a whistle-stop tour of what your career's looked like up to now. Skip the first 18 years of life or my birth and things and just go straight to medical school. Mm-hmm. I sort of ended up doing medicine really because my, I guess my dad convinced me that even if I didn't know what to do, I wouldn't be unemployed. Was he a doctor? He was a doctor, okay. yes. He was a, although a pathologist, he, didn't, he only saw dead bodies, mm-hmm. not, not live people. Mm, sure. So I went along with it and I, and I was a bit of a lazy student, wasn't really into it until... I did a bit of research as a medical student that, that got me into the idea of research. So 
Um, I sort of got better as I went as I went on and actually mm-hmm. started to enjoy it. Uh, so I did general medicine and I picked a specialty called rheumatology, mm-hmm. which is bones and joints, mm-hmm. and trained in that to be a consultant specialist in that subject. But on the way, I had to do some research to do a, a thesis, like a PhD, and did something called epidemiology. Mm-hmm. So I took a year out, did a master's, and that's about studying populations. Mm-hmm. So I was always quite much more interested in the why people get disease. Uh, and this was at the time I was doing it in the 1980s, the real sort of cutting edge thing to do was to get these studies, uh, work out what the risk factors were. That's how they discovered that smoking causes lung cancer. Mm-hmm. In the and, 1980s? Well, they did that uh, earlier, but that, right. it was the, the group of doctors 20 yeah. years before that had actually right. done all that. So they were finding all kinds of things about breast cancer and age of birth and you know, looking into the contraceptive pill and the mm-hmm. risks and things. It was quite an exciting time to do yeah. that. So I, that's what I, I did, and I spent several years doing that, looking at arthritis. Mm-hmm. No one had really studied that, and hormones and menopause and arthritis and what was causing some people to get these rather strange diseases. But then I went back to clinical work because I, I needed to get a salary, and I was a consultant at St. Thomas's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And then I had the idea of starting a twin register. Where okay. The UK's only adult twin register. And it just seemed really cool. It would link my desire to be a sort of detect- medical detective, if you like. Mm-hmm. And we, through various media appeals, got thousands of twins to come and regularly come to St. Thomas's Hospital mm-hmm. just up the road. And now we have 16,000 of these twins. So it's, it's you know, the biggest of its kind in the world. And I've Incredible. been doing that for 30 years. So yeah. that was probably my best idea I've had, I think, was to do that because it allowed me to first look at nature v nurture because mm-hmm. twins are a perfect natural experiment of course yeah uh, you compare identicals who are clones with non-identicals yeah and any difference between them has to be genetic so we were looking at lots of diseases and personality traits as well yeah that no one else had studied so you know we were the first to show that you know back pain was three times more genetic than breast cancer wow and all kinds of diseases that people thought were just old age turned out to have a genetic basis. So lots of things like that. We, you know, we got in the media and about, uh, we did hundreds of these studies. And we also did, you know, kind of weird stuff like looking at the genetics of religion, mm-hmm. to see whether belief in God had a genetic component. That's so interesting. Which it does. Uh, we looked at sense of humor. Uh, we couldn't find a gene for, for really no gene for sense of humour. But we also looked at political beliefs and even asked people about Brexit, which was uh, interesting, and found there is a genetic basis for left wing or right wing views really? as well. So a lot of the things that we think are our free will have some genetic basis. Is there an easy way to sum up the genetic predisposition for certain religious beliefs, or no? What we showed is that. It's not specific religious beliefs, mm-hmm. and it's not whether you go to church. Yes. It's not your practice. Yeah. That is not, that's, that's environment. Of course. But how spiritual you are as a person, how strongly you believe something that may be unprovable, yeah. um, tends, has about a 40 to 50% genetic influence. My hypothesis is that as religion has got less common, 
less, you know, it's now below 50% of the population mm. believe in God. Um, it's been replaced by other similar traits like extreme views on the environment mm-hmm. or veganism mm-hmm. or particular dietary, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who knows the keto diet or, yeah. you know, these, these personality traits want to belong to some group. Right. Uh, and I think this is part of our human nature. And yeah. it's, so religion was one, but equally there's the genetics, you know, just as strong for atheism. Right. So it's a kind of pack instinct. Yeah, I think that's that's really what we're looking at. So yeah. you know, we've evolved, and religion for a long time was very beneficial mm-hmm. for humans, helped survival. So it was a useful trait to have this sort of strong tribal belief in something and mm. want to belong. So that that was a sort of nice aside. Of course, I didn't get any funding for any of that. So yeah, I couldn't right. They're like <laughs> back to work, and you're like <laughs> exactly. But atheism. NHS is not going to pay for that. Or, 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 I think that's so or the interesting. Taxpayer, but it, it, often these philosophical ones. We also yeah. did stuff on sexuality yeah. and um, the genetics of um, you know, female sexuality and sexual problems and all these things. Yeah. So nearly everything we studied ended up having some genetic basis, which That's was incredibly cool. interesting. Um, so, you know, uh, and we were the first people to ask women about their sexual problems, mm-hmm. and, you know, ability to orgasm and all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff that turned out it has strong genetic component. Whereas wow. most people think, oh, well, it's, you know. Yeah, environment. It's totally environment or it's my fault or whatever it is. Yeah. But so, that, yeah, that, that really pushed me to say, oh, genetics is everything. But yeah. then after, after having done this for about 20 years um, on nearly every subject, as you can imagine, I, I could find. Yeah. Um, I started looking at why identical twins were so different. Mm-hmm. And because the weird fact is, although they look so similar, they smile the same way, they pick up their coffee cup the same way they laugh the same way they age differently they die at different times they get different diseases one gets cancer one gets depression the other mm-hmm. one doesn't etc yeah. etc many many examples of this and i was just saying so why they're clones genetic clones they lived 18 years at together, least yeah. together done virtually everything together why would one get cancer and the other one not um, it doesn't sort of make sense. Um, so that drew me to looking, and I looked at something called epigenetics, mm-hmm. which is how you switch genes on and off mm-hmm. with little chemicals, like vitamins can do that, or okay. um, just stress, emotional stress can do mm-hmm. that. But I did that for a few years, but it never really gave me the big results I wanted. It showed small differences, but not the big ones. And it was then that I came across gut microbes, and um, that, for the first time, we showed something we could measure in, the, in, in your gut. You measure in a poo sample mm-hmm. uh, using genetic methods, the same genetic methods I'd been using. And I'd realized for the first time I'd found something that really wasn't similar at all in identical twins. Mm-hmm. It was really hardly any different to oh, the random population, whereas everything else had been so closely matched. So suddenly I had a, a reason to explain why you know, identical twins were reacting differently to the identical environment. And that was a sort of aha moment. I said, wow, this is incredible. You know, this, we're all incredibly different in this sort of new organ in our bodies mm. uh, that 
hadn't really been thought about, certainly not 10, you know, 12 years ago when, when I was starting all this. So that really got me on this journey to really say, I've got to really move all my research away from genes into the gut microbiome because unlike genes, you, you know, where you, you can't really change your parents. Yeah, sure. Uh, you're stuck with them. Uh, <laughs> um, you can change your gut microbes mm -hmm. through food. And so suddenly this was a really actionable area of research and you know has that set me up for the next 10 years so that got me into writing books about it yeah uh, i wrote a book called the diet myth started writing that about uh, 10 years ago and it it came out um about 2015 which is one of the first books on introducing this whole concept and how that changed our views on diet yeah and how we got lots of things wrong because we didn't really account for it yeah you know? we just treated the body as if it was some little furnace that you put yeah, fuel in one end and, yeah, yeah. and e energy and heat comes out the other end and mm -hmm. it's totally simple. It's all about calories. So right. the fact that you have this really amazing extra organ in your body, the gut microbiome, um, was you know quite illuminating and really changed, I think, the way we think about food and diet and everything else. And that story led me to... I was talking about the diet myth at a meeting six years ago in London. Two guys came up to me and said, we'd love to get together and do a, a company based around this individuality in your microbes, right. plus some, this new area of personalized nutrition. Yeah. And that's where the company Zoe was formed, which was you know, the next phase in my career, if you like, that alongside all this research, suddenly I had a company that was... Um, willing to fund a lot of the research to get whole personalized nutrition and the gut microbiome into center stage, do the really big studies that I, I couldn't get done through my normal funding routes. You right. know, I needed the millions that investors can bring and also the speed and energy that um, startup companies do. And so that's where Zoe was born and that's this personalized nutrition company that's now doing very well in the US and the UK. Yeah. And it's now we've now got you know fifty thousand stool samples from customers who are basically uh, you know allowing us to do research on all their samples. Yeah. And so I'm suddenly very happy with this, and um, and has allowed me to continue with my area of research: gut health, microbiome. Uh, I've written two other books. Yeah. In that time, spoon fed and more. Uh, just recently, food for life. Uh huh. Um, which is really just getting the word out about about this new way of looking at nutrition and how everyone needs to forget all the old rules yeah. and start afresh, realize that we know so little, yeah. we're so badly educated. And uh, these, hopefully, the tools people need for life so that they realize that the most important choice they make in their lives um, every day about their health is actually what to eat. Yeah. And I don't think people realize they have that power. Yeah. And I think that that's the real big message, you know, that all this uh, focuses around. That's the number one thing. that Everyone has power to change their health every day with all the multiple food choices we make. Right. I really want to talk about when you kind of first came to these discoveries about the gut. I don't think I heard anything about the gut other than kind of this idea of probiotics and yogurt um, in kind of advertising when I was little until, I don't know, 
few years ago when it really became the thing. When you first came out with this research, was it just generally not talked about anywhere or kind of in the mainstream? It wasn't in the mainstream at all. Mm -hmm. So yeah, when I wrote my first book, Diet Myth, um, you know, it did quite well, but people had never heard of any of these concepts. Right. They'd never heard uh, of fermented milk, kefir or kombucha, right. which are now, if you live in places like London, everywhere. Yeah, right? of course. But so things have happened very rapidly. And as you said, I think most people vaguely knew through yogurt advertising yeah. that microbes were something that you could you could eat, you could buy. Yeah. And basically those but all you knew is they came in the yogurt and you if you bought it it was good and right. if you didn't it was bad. But you weren't really told that you had your own set of gut microbes that were yeah. really important that you need to look after. I think that mm -hmm. was the big difference. And this is because we didn't have the technology to do it. You've got to realize that it's taken, you know, 25 years of genetics to do this amazing job so we can detect all these microbes before you have to grow them up on a little plate of, um, a, a, you know, food. And that only allowed us to look at 1% of them. Right. Whereas, I mean, just so people know, they've got microbes. We're talking about 100 trillion individual microbes living inside our, our guts. If you put them all together, they weigh the same as your brain. Mm -hmm. Right, so we're a couple of pounds if you put them all together, and they're this huge community of bacteria, viruses, fungi, even parasites mm -hmm. that we've all got that mm -hmm. are all individual. Nice. And best way to think about what they do, because you, know, you just think, oh well, they're just there eating your food, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we were taught. You know, they're just doing nothing, waiting around the dark for you to eat something. Uh, but no, they, they're mini pharmacies. They're converting that food into really powerful chemicals for your brain, you know, changing whether you're happy or sad. They're also key to your immune system. So most of the immune cells are actually in your whole body are actually lining your gut. So all these little chemicals from the microbes are talking to these immune cells, making sure you don't get food allergy, making sure you don't uh, overreact to things, but also making sure you're primed to deal with infections or early cancers or mm. anything at all. So they're key to that and, of course, our digestion, metabolism. They control our weight, our appetite. You know, we, we produce only about 20, at most, of our own um, chemicals for our gut, whereas the gut microbes produce thousands of them. And that's, so we work and have evolved with them to do that. Yeah. So we've never really given them much consideration. Sure. And actually, we've been trying to get rid of them. Yeah. Most, for, for, for most of, sort of the last 100 years, we've been worried about them, trying to eliminate them, wiping them out with antibiotics, wiping them out with junk food. Mm -hmm. And we really haven't given them the, the dominance. So hopefully, this is the platform, this is the era of our gut microbes and they can uh, and realize you know if they're healthy then the rest of you is going to be healthy yeah that's so incredibly interesting from the beginning just for someone who's coming into this you know not knowing anything about the gut can you just quickly explain what the gut actually is like is it your stomach is it a collection of places what is it the gut is basically the the tube the in, that runs from your mouth to your anus Okay, lovely. Okay, so mm -hmm. it's all the bits in between. Yeah. So you're right, many people 
point to their the gut stomach, and they yeah, only yeah. think about the stomach. Mm -hmm. But it's the whole the whole passage where food is ingested and go and comes out in the toilet. That is the gut, and it's made up of all these different bits, and uh, it's several meters long. Mm -hmm. It varies quite a lot between people, but we're talking, you know, if you rolled it all out, it would be, you know, the size of a tennis court or whatever, mm. because it's got lots of little uh, wrinkly bits and folds. So it's you've got your mouth, then you've got your gullet, which is your esophagus, which is a little tube that goes down to your stomach. Mm -hmm. That's where all the acid is. Then it goes to your small intestine where you get the little squashed up bits of your food, then yeah. gets digested uh, in the small intestine and the sugars and things like that get absorbed. All the other stuff like the fiber uh, the, the, in real foods goes further down into your the next bit, which is called the large intestine or the colon. And that's several meters long. And that's where your microbes live. And they eat on the fiber, all the, the green outer bits of plants, etc., and also some of the fats, and they digest that, and that's where they live and they produce all the good things. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it goes from the large intestine, it just goes down to the rectum, and then mm -hmm. out gets pooed out as your stool. Mm -hmm. And every day we poo out about half of our gut microbes. So they're a very fast and furious lifestyle, you know. Right, they, yeah, I can they have tell. To, uh, you know, they've no got to live fast. For them. They've got to live, live fast. fast or young. So we're full of replicating microbes right. all the time, and they're very much part of this whole real key process. So understanding your, your gut and what it does is really important because when it comes to food, yeah. unfortunately, most of the food we have now is junk food, ultra-processed food. That gets absorbed totally in our small intestine very early, straight into the bloodstream, leaving our microbes uh, hungry. So for someone who's listening to this and thinking, cool, I need to make my gut healthier, I don't know how, where would be a good place to start? Like, what are the general hygiene things that we can do to maintain or create a healthy gut? The first thing is to eat more diverse plants. Mm -hmm. Microbes feed off different plants, and we have thousands of different species, then each of them is like specially adapted to one type of plant. So if you only have the same prawn salad yeah. every day, mm -hmm. you won't feed all the different microbes you could be feeding. We so know, be eating mushrooms every single day well, rather than anything it's else. Good, it's good for the mushroom-eating microbes. Yeah, They'll the others are sad. I love mushrooms, by mm -hmm. the way. They're fantastic. Great, fantastic. Um, for your health. But... Either you need lots of different varieties of mushroom, which will have different chemicals in them. Yeah. Okay, so there are hundreds of species you can, you can eat um, and hundreds you can't eat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, each of those has different chemicals, which will keep a little family of microbes alive. So it's the variety they like. That's mm -hmm. really important. And so we did some research five years ago that shows that the optimum for mm -hmm. your gut health. And we think gut health is getting a wide variety of species. Yeah. That is associated with everyone who's healthy has a has that look about mm -hmm. their microbes, is to have a 30 different plants a week. So it's not 30 um, mushrooms 30 times a day. Sure. It's it's you know making sure you've got your, your mushrooms, maybe different types of mushrooms, uh, you've got 
peppers that can be red, red peppers, green peppers. It can be different types of bean, black beans, uh, broad beans, uh, white beans. Um, it can be nuts. It can be seeds. All, each of them counts as a separate plant. Uh, you can have a herb spice, an Indian herb spice that counts. And it's not as hard as it sounds if you have a varied, you know, and in places like London or whatever, where you've got lots of amazing different varieties of cooking. You've got you know, Middle Eastern cooking or Asian cooking often has a lot of these ingredients anyway. So it's embracing that diversity of plants is the first thing people should do. So rather than having meat and two veg or just the same beige food mm -hmm. or ultra processed foods, it's this variety. Second thing is to eat the, eat the rainbow. So I've talked about some of those colors. The reason is in brightly colored foods, there are these defense chemicals called polyphenols. Okay. People will hear more and more about this. It will start to get on packets soon. And this gives it their, both a bright color, but also the bitter tastes. Okay. Good example is extra virgin olive oil. I don't know if you like olive oil, but um, it's the, everyone should use extra virgin olive oil if they're interested in their health, right? No other cooking oil comes close because it's, A, it's got a bright color and it's bitter if you, uh, drink it and it you know, even some peppery you know can make you sort of cough that's because of the polyphenols just like nuts also yeah. have that or, or even um, red wine if you drink red wine strong red wine yeah it's got tannins in it that's polyphenols and that's why of all the alcohol uh, red wine is the only one that's been shown to be good for your gut microbes thrilled with that news on the extra virgin olive oil thing I have been taught, you know how it's in darkened bottles? I thought you weren't, you shouldn't be cooking with extra virgin olive oil. You should be using it cold because if you heat it, it's carcinogenic. That's it, rubbish. Really? I tell everyone that. So if that gets out, it's actually purely because of me. Yeah. Well, you, you've got to read that chapter in my book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I really talk about good. this. That's and, my fun fact. I'm not going to have to find a new one. Yeah. Well, again, it's, you know, We've got to move away from this food causes cancer. This food <laughs> sure. makes you live forever. You know, this is great for your sex mm. life. You know, it's like we'd, we're often taking one chemical out of 800 and yeah. saying that if you put that in a, in a lab or you give enormous amounts of that chemical to poor old rats, yeah. that, you know, that the equivalent of giving someone a thousand times the human dose, you get cancer. So all those artificial studies worth nothing right because they're in isolation they're in isolation they were done in small numbers or you know it was done by the sunflower oil manufacturers sure to, to yeah their right wipe out their rivals right so there is no evidence at all that uh, olive oil has any cancerogenic properties and you might be referring to the idea that if you burn oil if you sort of if you wok fried um uh you superheated your olive oil right yeah. but Basically, its its smoke point is is around two hundred degrees, mm -hmm. which is usually well above your frying levels. Yes, I'm not that. Um, high and attitude. so, only if you're doing really, you know, stir fry Asian food, yes, maybe then you don't have it. Uh, but the, generally, the smoke point is low, and even if it did have that smoke point above it, where you start to see a funny coloured. You know, in theory, that's carcinogenic, mm. but in reality, no one's really shown it's a problem. I mean, the main proof is that you've got thousands of people in studies being given either 
extra olive oil or nothing, and the ones with extra olive oil always do better mm-hmm. in every single study long term for health, cancer, heart disease, whatever. Hmm. So it's rubbish. So stop telling that. Yeah. Stop <laughs> sure. spraying the rumor. Everyone should be extra virgin olive oil for their, not only their salads, <laughs> but also their cooking. They shouldn't be using a lot of these other highly refined olive oils that mm-hmm. are much less stable, much more likely to uh, you know, cause you problems with your health yeah. and your gut. Much worse for the planet as well. Right. Okay. Well, it's actually, it's actually good news for me because despite having lost my fun fact, I actually was cooking with extra virgin olive oil for a very long time and then was told this. The darkened bottles then, this really backed up my claim. So do you know why they're in darkened bottles? To stop them uh, oxidizing so that mm-hmm. they don't, the, f- the fat, because there's a lot of fat in, in mm-hmm. olive oil, doesn't go rancid. Okay. So it's basically to protect it from sunlight, sure. uh, which would accelerate that process. So you can't have olive oil last for years in your cupboard. You need mm-hmm. to use it up. You can smell it and you can tell generally it's gone off. And you shouldn't really buy olive oil in clear bottles mm-hmm. and you should store it out of the sun. Okay. That's the reason. It's just... Just to keep it fresh and, and, and stop it going moldy, really. Okay, great. It doesn't mean it's going to be deadly. Yeah, no, uh, incredibly helpful well. to so, my... But it's a great example of, of these sort of food myths. Yeah, sure. And how, I don't know, reading the Daily Mail or whatever, you know too much. <laughs> that is not where I got it from, just FYI. <laughs> but I'm sure you can. Uh, yeah. One week it saves you from cancer, the next week... Yeah, you know, yeah, sure. The same thing's about coffee, you know, that was another um, thing that... Even I wrote an article when I was young saying that coffee causes cancer. Right. I was and guilty of one of those. And you retract that statement. I was totally wrong. And uh, I'm, it's now obvious that coffee is a health food. And Fantastic. It's really good for your gut microbes because it's got polyphenols in it. And that's why it's bitter. Mm-hmm. And it's made from a fermented bean. So it's actually, you know, it's one of your 30 plants Interesting. a week. And all the studies now show it reduces heart disease and increases longevity. So, you know, it's really important to not take one study out of context, mm, as, the press, as the press often do. Mm. You've got to look at these, all the studies together, do something called a meta-analysis where you summarize them, but also putting in the light of what our, how it affects our gut microbes generally mm-hmm. helps you realize whether it's good or bad. If it helps your gut microbes, it's always going to be good for you. And so mm-hmm. you logically start to think of, yeah, is it diverse? Is it whole food? Is it brightly colored? Is it mm-hmm. got these polyphenols? Is it fermented? If it's a, you know, if it's fermented food, which means it's got live microbes in it, mm. um, like, like your yogurt, like good quality cheeses, like your kefir, kombucha, kimchi, sauerkraut. Mm-hmm then that's going to be good for you and good for your gut. Mm-hmm. And that's been now proven. It actually reduces, helps your immune system, reduces inflammation. And they're the sort of key positive things. Uh, then there's a few things to avoid. So the other is to, to help your gut avoid eating overnight. Mm-hmm. So reduce your uh, eating time. Uh, I don't know, do you eat late at night? Sometimes when I've come back from work late, um, I do eat around, you know, I'll eat an hour before I go to bed, which I know is bad. And my heart rate monitor tells me it's bad as well because it calls me out on it in the morning. So, you know, we all have busy work and sometimes you've got to eat and whatever. Mm, yeah. you, you can't, but 
if you just in the morning delayed your breakfast so that you had at least 12 hours mm. uh, between eating episodes and ideally 14, uh, you, we're doing studies now that showing that's pretty good for most people. Mm. And uh, giving your gut a rest is really yeah. important. So if you end up having a late dinner, then have a later breakfast. Correct. And that's what if you ever go to Italy or Spain, you, know, you can't get an early dinner. Mm-hmm. And you sit down to eat and yeah, but they don't have breakfast. Yeah. You know, they would have, you know, um, an espresso and a cigarette. And yeah. I'm not saying I'll have the cigarette. <laughs> the, uh, um, you know what I mean? So yeah, it, it's yeah. not a big deal. They, they don't sort of say, oh, we can't go to work without mm. it. And they would have something at, you know, 11. Yeah. Uh, maybe they have, you know, a snack at 11 with their next coffee. Yeah. It sounds um, like I'm very much Italian. So that's, People just need to realize that, you know, if, if you are, if you focus on what your gut wants, then you can't go that far wrong. So I think yeah. that's really important. The other thing is, you know, the, the key bit is to, for your gut, is to reduce ultra-processed foods. Mm-hmm. 60% nearly of all the calories taken in the UK are now ultra-processed. And most people don't know what an ultra-processed yeah. food is. They yeah, what qualifies? So there are lots of different definitions, and this is part of the problem, and they don't have to say it on the packet. Mm-hmm. So it's up to the consumer to actually call it out. Generally, if it's in a packet and it's got health claims, it's usually a, it claims to be healthy, it's an ultra-processed food. Um, that's the very simplistic way of doing yes. it. Yes. There are always exceptions. But, you know, you don't get health claims on an apple. Yeah. Um, they do their marketing themselves. But if you had a sort of apple puree or a puree spread for children or something, mm-hmm. it would say this is you know one of your five a day. It's mm-hmm. got vitamin C in it. It's you know because they're disguising the fact that it's fake food. They're basically ultra processed food is when they take some of the ingredients uh, that are natural and they recreate it artificially to save them money or to get a health label so that they can reduce the fat content. Mm-hmm. So they reduce the fat content artificially by taking something out of the milk, for example. So you only use milk powder, um, and then you add in other stuff like starches or glues or gums uh, to give it some similar feel in the mouth. Mm-hmm. That's, and everything's always cheaper. Yeah. And so it's that substituting. So it's when you see a list of ingredients that you wouldn't have in your kitchen, mm-hmm. things like modified starches, xanthan gums, mm. uh, emulsifiers, uh, lecithins, uh, carrageenans, um, preservatives, mm. all these things, various lists of artificial sweeteners. So most people think artificial sweeteners are inert and harmless and a good thing to have because they're avoiding sugar. But we've been misled and increasingly uh, we're sold these mixtures of chemicals in our foods as routine, and we don't even think to look anymore. Whereas all of these products, which we eat more of than any other country in Europe, are being given to us, our children, being served in institutions, in hospitals, at schools. And we now know that they are probably the main cause of the obesity crisis in this country. Not because of the fats, the sugars, the calories, which we've been told, because 
the manufacturers can get around that by producing low versions of that. But these foods have been shown to make us overeat. Mm-hmm. And so eating the identical food that's... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Made in a factory using these sort of fake ways of reproducing it versus the actual original food. Huge differences you can see in how full they make you and how much you want to keep eating more. We've all known that with certain snack foods. There's some brilliant ones that taste incredible. You just I can't stop eating that. You know, I've got to keep getting those snacks back into me. That's because of the, they can mix these chemicals to fool Mm. your brain in a way that we've never evolved to do. And that's, and that's why the UK is the most, you know, obese country in Europe and it's just getting worse. Mm. And it costs the country and the taxpayer, I think it was um, close to about £60 billion uh, a year. That's a whole lot of money. Which is a lot of money that taxpayers are paying for uh, to subsidise basically junk food's effect on, on our health system. What would you then suggest are the legislation changes that need to be made in order to encourage, whether it's in like food labelling, whether it's in any of that, that would educate better on these types of things? Because it sounds like a lot of what we assume to be true 15 years ago perhaps isn't true and the legislation maybe hasn't caught up with it. We'll first have to stop effectively subsidising these fake food companies. Mm -hmm. Right. Because through the the farm subsidies, they, they get lots of benefits that way. But I think we need transparency, first of all. So we, we need a independent group that would set up and say, okay, we're defining this as ultra-processed. And you're, you know, it should have a black label on it saying this is ultra-processed food. It should come with a health warning, like cigarettes, saying this will make you overeat by 10% every day, for example, mm. uh, or 15%, whatever the exact figure is. Mm. And so you're given a warning on it. Mm. Rather than this is health, they shouldn't be allowed to have health claims on yeah. those on those packets. I've got no problem with people eating, you know, a Mars bar or um, a Coke or a Pepsi because you know they're not good for you. Yeah, sure. Uh, perfectly fine to have treats that you know, are, but to falsely label all of this food um, as healthy uh, when it it's killing us. Mm. It just seems to be totally wrong. So it's. It's, it's just not an easy solution to change the financial system. The sugar tax could have been expanded mm-hmm. easily to include artificial sweeteners and artificial foods uh, so that the relative balance between real food and, and junk food was, was less because it's getting bigger every year, getting harder to buy fresh fruit and vegetables for the same price as you can buy something made by robots mm. in a factory. Um, 
but that that would have been a start is to expand that but again the food companies are so powerful they will mm. lobby against it that's why you never hear uh, Any anything this. about this um, <laughs> yeah which you know is is one of the biggest disasters of our time as we're growing up we've never seen so many obese children mm. uh, that we have it was never saw it when I was at school and it's happened relatively recently mm. you know, the idea of snacking is a new phenomenon mm. um, the average Britain has six or seven eating episodes a day mm. and this is now considered the norm okay what's your snack what's your preferred snack mm. you go to Italy and Spain they don't even understand the concept mm. uh, they have proper meals yeah and that's what we need to get back to is this mm. idea that we don't need to eat little and often. Mm. We need just decent meals, sitting down, probably not at your desk, you know, which is the, the current thing that we're all guilty of. Um, you know, the French spend twice as long eating meals as we do in, this, in the UK. Mm. And so it's also how you eat is really as important as, as what you eat and looking at it, not eating in front of the telly, you know. Um, where you tend to overeat. I'm really being reasons. called out here. Um, well, we, all, we all do this stuff, right? And I do yeah. as well. You know, I, I had a TV dinner last night, right? Yeah. I'm not saying I'm perfect. Right. But I think you need to know what is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what is right and wrong and then make your own decision mm -hmm. transparently. Yeah. And everyone can make their own mind up. But mm. the fact that uh, we know so little about nutrition and food and no one's taught to cook properly in school anymore. Yeah. Many people cannot cook. Mm. You know. I would have loved to have food tech in school. Um, I mean, I think it's very important to make sure that it's both the boys and the girls doing the food tech. But I agree that like we shouldn't be getting to, you know, people talk about university almost as like the first time you learn to cook food. Thankfully, first I was, time boiling eggs. Yeah, for some, exactly. Some of my, uh, and well, I was astounded by how many people didn't know how to cook. I have kind of cooked for myself since I was, you know. 13 or something so kind of pretty proficient but in terms of I could not believe how many people you know YouTubing boiling an egg well what you know everyone should be able to cook five meals before yeah. they leave school surely mm. that's a better life skill than algebra well I'd agree you know there are many things we learn at school that are, mm. are useless for 99 uh 0.5 percent of us mm -hmm. and there's some skills you know like whether it's touch typing or it's um, yeah uh, learning how to cook five uh, dishes tell us about life yeah and you know how to do a tax return and these things yeah you know, um, oh god yeah I would have needed that <laughs> you know not be frightened of, of, of forms and things so mm. I think learning stuff in school you know, we're going to have chatbots anyway doing, you know, doing all this for us. We need to, we need to do some of these practical things. Yeah. Uh, and that's really educating people about food, I think, is really important. And learning how to cook is a key part of it because you do find that if you're actually touching food or children are touching food all the time, they get to know it. They've done horrendous surveys. So most children don't know, you know, where chicken comes from or <laughs> the difference between... <laughs> fish and chicken in yeah. packets and things like this, you know, if you go to a supermarket. Because we're so distanced from mm. the food itself. Yeah. Uh, and particularly meats and processed meats and things. No idea how stuff is made. Yeah. If people knew, you know, I think it's, it's, it's terrible that we, we have this uh, blind spot mm. for 
most important area of our health. Let's talk about diets. You've done a lot of work and kind of spoken a lot about whether diets work, what types of diets work, et cetera, et cetera. Could you give us a little kind of information on that? Do diets work? Uh, in one word, no, but there's also <laughs> a caveat mm-hmm. that for most people, they don't work. Okay, so if, if in terms of a diet, you're talking about a restriction in calories. Mm-hmm. So someone says, right, I'm going to, the average woman, there's no such thing as the average woman, though, but if there was, uh, have 2,000 calories a day, and they say, okay, I'm going to go on a diet, I'm going to reduce my calories by more than 500, or go to 1,500 mm-hmm. calories a day, I'm going to count my calories. Very few people can actually do that um, accurately, but say they, they were really strict and they went to 1,000 calories, they say, I'm going to eat half of everything for the next six weeks. They will lose weight. If you manage it, you will lose weight. But what we see is that the vast majority of people regain that weight mm-hmm. because uh, your body reacts. It gets in- increasingly harder to keep uh, those calories off. Mm-hmm. Your brain is screaming at you, eat, eat, eat. It sees, you know, you start dreaming about food. You yeah. get delirious. Uh, and you get a bad mood, and you also your metabolism slows down. So your body's conserving its energy, so you're actually using less. So you you, you tail off. You don't continue losing weight. It, it, it pretty much stops. Mm-hmm. So you have to get more and more extreme all the time to keep losing that weight. And this is what all the studies have shown, is that after a couple of years, um, 80% of people have either gone back to where they were or have gone above, back above it. Okay. So there are a few exceptions. And when I've said this before, people say, oh, that's not true. I managed it very well. Those people are rare exceptions. And so the idea of dieting with a purely calorie restriction goes against all the science and all the data that uh, we have. And these properly done studies. And that's in controlled trials. So you imagine you've got all these scientists looking at you, encouraging you to carry on, nurses phoning you up and saying, oh, how are you doing? Huge motivation. Most people don't have that anyway. So that 80% figure is probably um, 95% in real life. Mm. So that's why diets don't work if you're focusing on calories. And I think we have to give up the idea of the short term, unless you would just want it short term. But Mm -hmm. I think... People realize there is a bounce back. Yeah. And often people who go through this cycle of, uh, sort of feast and famine do worse long term. So they end up more overweight 20 years later. And we've done some studies on twins where one was doing this dieting, the other one wasn't. Although they started the same place, the dieting one ended up more overweight than the uh, one who didn't bother. Mm-hmm. What we do believe, particularly with uh, my company Zoe is that changing what you eat does have a big effect. So firstly, cutting out ultra-processed foods Mm -hmm. will make you less hungry. Mm -hmm. You won't have those hunger pangs and you'll probably be eating less. And cutting out some of these sugar spikes and fat spikes will also reduce your hunger pangs and the sort of stress on your body as well. So just shifting to eating proper food and eating for your gut will help, uh, but it takes, it's, 
you're not going to get a dramatic weight loss. Yeah. But you've got to think, well, do you want a dramatic weight loss if it's going to rebound? No. You mm. want to do something gradual that's going to, you, you can sustain for years. Mm -hmm. So little things like time-restricted eating where you're eating in a shorter window helps a little bit. Uh, changing from ultra-processed foods to real foods helps a little bit. Reducing your sugar spikes and your fat spikes using something like the Zoe program um, also works. But it's, it's not the quick fix that the, the diet industry wants you to believe. It's not taking liquid meal replacements. Um, and it's, you know, it's not what people believe. And mm. so I think people have got to realize that you know, the, the industry would like you to continue eating ultra-processed foods, mm -hmm. just have the half the amount of it and carry on, mm -hmm. still being sick, still having terrible gut microbes and sort of cycling between these, mm. th these, these episodes. So uh, it's about understanding food, really. And I think yeah. that's why everything we talk about is trying to not just sort of give someone a, a recipe mm -hmm. they don't understand or they just got to follow it blindly for x weeks it's got to be re-educating people so you know about food for the rest of your life mm -hmm. and you can stay healthy because it's it's not all about weight anyway yeah i mean i'm a big believer that we need to sort of heal people from the inside out rather than the outside in mm. and that if you sort out your gut microbes you know the rest will naturally mm. follow um and it won't be dramatic but it will be sustained mm. and you won't be you know having any rebounds mm. in a year's or two years' time. Yeah. I think that's really important. Because we've you know, got to realize how unhealthy this country is compared to our ancestors and how our guts have... We've lost half our gut microbes in the last 100 years. Mm. They've just disappeared because we're not giving them fiber, not giving them real food, we're hitting them with antibiotics, we're hitting them with junk food, mm. all these things. Let's talk about antibiotics because I am always surprised about how little understanding that is of how dangerous it is to be taking antibiotics for everything. I recently, I'm going to call out my friends here, I recently went on a holiday um, and we went to Indonesia, which obviously is kind of well known for getting parasites and, you know, what they call barley belly, etc, etc. And both the people I went on holiday with brought antibiotics in case, which I understand the kind of um, idea of, but instantly, as soon as they got this bug, started taking them. I've always been told, and I come from a family of science background, so I'm pretty on it with this, um, but I've always kind of been told, you know, not to take antibiotics unless it's really needed. And recently as well, um, my boyfriend had sepsis um, and had two recurrent, well, had a recurrence of it and was given so many antibiotics. And obviously, thank God, he hadn't taken a lot of antibiotics for the rest of his life because they were able to work really effectively. And that almost like, shocked me into being like oh god yeah really need to avoid taking them for everything but you are prescribed them for a lot of things that you go to the doctors with or general practitioners etc what should we generally be doing in terms of kind of taking antibiotics for illnesses infections whatever it might be yeah we were taught that there really is no downside to antibiotics yeah right? sure it's like smarties you just take them um fix it. a bit like artificial sweeteners it's mm. a, it's a free you know zero calories total pleasure. And that's nonsense. Um, we've, we know that both animal studies and some human studies have shown that if you take them regularly, it, it can uh, cause increase in weight. Mm -hmm. right. uh, it, it, 
increases uh, allergies in children. So children who had lots of antibiotics end up more have more food allergies. Oh, okay. And also you get antibiotic resistance, mm -hmm, which is, sort of affects everybody, mm -hmm. so that the next generation will have no antibiotics left that are going to treat a really bad infection right. that's life-threatening. So there's huge problems about this overuse. We use about twice or three times as many antibiotics as the Nordic countries. Right. And you know we're still sicker than them, so um, we're overusing it. Although we underuse it compared to some countries, so there are still, I think, the U.S. and um, some places in in southern Europe use it. But it's the idea, you know, they used they give it to animals to make them grow faster and get fatter. Okay. So next time your friends are thinking of you know taking an antibiotic course, say, well, it's likely to you know give you a tendency to put on weight and, and food allergy, you might be less keen to take something just in case. Mm -hmm. um, also dangers, some people take it multiple antibiotics can end up with really nasty gut infections. Right, yeah, of course. That can be virtually uncurable. Um, and you know, the, it wipes out all the normal microbes in their gut. Everyone responds differently to antibiotics as well. We don't understand why. Some people seem to be quite resistant to it, their bugs to fight back and don't really change others it totally changes their gut microbes but if you just think about how important your gut microbes are to your health you really don't want to be taking unnecessary antibiotics but you know but it can be life um, saving but you know we saw there was this recent scare you know about um, strep throat right suddenly you know we ran out of penicillin uh, because there was a mad rush Every time anyone got a sore throat, they wanted to take um, right. this when 95% of it was viral and mm. had no, no benefit and probably More harm. made the infection last a bit longer because you were damaging your immune system. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, we, we overuse it, mm. definitely. And people just need to think there's always a downside to everything. Mm. And that you know, everything you put in your mouth, whether it's a food or a chemical, mm. is going to have some interaction with your gut microbes. Mm -hmm. um, some people pop, pop some pills like um, proton pump inhibitors. Um, you can get over the counter for, for indigestion. Okay. They all change the acidity of your gut and your microbe profiles subtly change to so make you more liable to infections. So, okay. So nearly all these medicines we take have some downside downsides and uh yeah but and it it's quite interesting because the reason antidepressants don't work in some people is because we've got different microbes and you need the microbes to break down the antidepressant into into the chemical that is good for your brain so we're just learning all this stuff it's very mm. recent yeah but it just shows you that be wary of everything you put in your mouth you yeah know? and um it has a consequence yeah I want to talk quickly about the keto diet. Obviously, it's an incredibly popular diet and has been for a long time. I know you've spoken about it before, about whether it works, whether it maybe doesn't work. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yes, so the keto diet, which classically means you're eating really just fats and proteins and you're trying to have 70% of your meal as fats. I mean, some of them are milder than that, but that was the original sort of extreme one where your body is in ketosis. Um, works very well for childhood epilepsy. Okay, right. That was the original reason it was used. Okay. We still don't really understand why. It's something to do with the salts 
the, the microbes produce these bile salts in your liver mm. when they get lots of fat. And so this, these have some amazing effects uh, on the brain. Um, and a lot of people lost weight as well uh, from this. So there are some people that seem to benefit from these, these diets. Nearly everyone loses weight short term. Some people find it incredibly hard to do. Others find it very easy. Yeah, I tried it once. It turned into a monster, like a real monster. And it goes back to this this idea that we're all very individual when it comes mm. to how you respond to any foods or diets. And so I absolutely believe people that said it really works for them and they feel much better on it. Mm. But I think those those numbers of people is quite small. The average person isn't going to do well long term on a keto diet, although they might lose weight temporarily and then they'll put it on afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, if you have diabetes, interestingly, type 2 diabetes, a lot of people, and, and you're obese, a lot of people do do well initially by cutting out all the carbs and going on that. So there's a small group of people that do do well on this. Most people uh, tend to struggle with it, don't find it helpful, feel unwell. And this is probably because we all respond to fats very differently. Mm -hmm. And the Zoe studies have shown that if you test everyone with the same fatty muffin, uh, which when you do it, you'll, you'll find out you eat this fatty muffin and then six hours later, you've got to do a blood, blood test on your on mm -hmm. skin prick test. How much fat is remaining in your blood varies like 10 to 20 fold mm. between normal people. Yeah. So if, if you get rid of that fat really easily, you'll probably cope well with a, a high fat diet. Yeah. And if, if it's still hanging around, it causes inflammation and stress to your body. Yeah. So there's this huge variability between people that um, I think explains why you get these different reactions, but also why it's wrong for people to say the keto diet's for everybody. Right. But my main problem with the keto diet is that it's not good for your gut microbes long term. Sure. For all the reasons we explained, if you're not having uh, vegetables, fiber, uh, carbohydrates, then you're not nourishing your gut microbes mm -hmm. and they get very unbalanced. And long term, that's that's going to be bad. Mm. So uh, it's not, to my mind, a long term sustainable diet. Although for some people with diabetes or obesity, it, you know, it might be worth a way of kickstarting that particular problem. But it's a very specific group of people. Right. So obviously, we've been taught, um, I guess, for well, most of my life at least, like these ideas on how to lose weight, how to, you know get towards a physical goal you might be going for if someone's listening to this and they're thinking well <laughs> cool everything i thought works doesn't work what would be and they wanted to lose weight what would be the biggest pieces of advice you'd give them in terms of kind of top tips to being able to lose weight well the first is to understand your f what you're eating better mm -hmm. be able to separate ultra processed food and real food look at how you're your eating times you know, are important, whether you might want to skip breakfast to you know, alter, stop snacking. Mm. Do these sort of habit things that even before you get to worrying about how much do I eat. Mm. A lot of the how you eat, I think, is really important to sort out. Look at your diet objectively. So most people, just by switching to a gut-friendly diet, will be able to you know, lose some weight uh, you know, over the next few months. It may not come off like mm. that, but they'll move towards that. And I think 
realizing they're not going to have the same frozen lasagna every night or uh, the frozen pizza or the, mm. you know, and not eating out takeaways all the time that contain all these other chemicals you wouldn't be putting into your home cooking also have a big effect. So it's also realizing that some of the things that you thought should work for you don't. So there's a myth about exercise. Numerous studies, proper clinical trials have shown that exercise does not work for the majority of people as a weight loss tool. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that as many people gain weight when they exercise as lose weight. Mm -hmm. So you might be lucky, you might be in that small 10% of people that find that it has a beneficial effect, but you're much more likely to have either no effect or actually put on weight because your body is reacting, thinking it's in a, you know, our ancestors on the African savannas, doing a lot of exercise, what happens? Your body shuts down, it doesn't, uh, its metabolism slows right down, mm. makes you hungrier, mm. and so that's what it's designed to do. And so unless you're doing extreme uh, ultramarathons or uh, mm -hmm. Ironman, mm. Can which most people aren't, I'm mm -hmm. talking about the average mm. uh, sort of small amount of exercise, generally it will make you hungrier. So anything, you'll be putting back on anything you gain. So I'm all for exercise. It's fantastic for all, kinds, all parts of health, including mental health. Mm. And I know you and I both exercise. It's not a big deal, but don't use it initially as a weight loss tool. Right. There's some evidence that once you've managed to change your diet, your lifestyle, whatever, uh, if you're exercising at the same time, it stops it creeping back. Right. A, a, so it's a, a maintenance tool and a it bit. kind of, yeah. Um, but a lot of people beat themselves up because they've, they've said, I'm going to lose weight in January. I'm going to go to a gym. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they go on their treadmill, they do all this stuff. And they don't lose anything, mm -hmm. and they get very um, depressed mm. and a uh, bit of self-loathing, and say it's all my fault and whatever. I'm useless. And all my my skinny friends, you know, doing amazingly. I think this information is really vital. Yeah. Because it, it means it's absolutely not your fault. It doesn't mean exercise is bad. Yeah. It just means you haven't focused on your diet and uh, all this nonsense that you know many gyms try and sell you in in the, in January or whatever uh, is is a false myth, not back, not backed up by science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I've always had specifically good results, I guess, from exercise. Perhaps I'm in that 10%. Perhaps also I, you know, I work a desk job, so I live a pretty sedentary life. And perhaps it's also that when I am adding more movement into my day, I may be less kind of bored in terms of like keeping my body active and therefore... I don't know, maybe consuming less snacks or whatever it might be. I feel like I'm also happier when I'm less sedentary. As I kind of explained before we started the podcast, I always have, you know, I'll have this few days where I'll be a little bit grumpier. I'll be a little bit more kind of tetchy and um, quick to frustration. And I'll realize it's because I actually haven't even walked anywhere kind of in the past few days because I've just been zipping around doing as much work as possible. So I guess, yeah, I mean, obviously individually, very important kind of when looking at this but also would you say finding what works for you and finding what maybe doesn't work for you and maybe not just taking kind of people's recommendations at face value absolutely that's that's exactly my whole message really mm. on all these lifestyle yeah um, myths 
is we're being told this works, this works, this works. And, and part of what you know, I'm doing with my books and what we're doing with Zoe is to try and myth bust mm-hmm. and say, well, actually, this doesn't work for the average person. Sure. But as I said, we're all different. Yeah. We're all much more different than we've been led to believe. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't just follow a recipe and everything is going to happen and we're going to get a six pack and we'll be doing yeah. this and whatever. Everyone's got to find their own route through experimentation, through not believing some, a lot of the dogma that's out there. Mm. It's like taking some magic supplement is going mm. to make you lose weight or take, you know, uh, this particular two minutes a day exercise mm. is going to change your life. You yeah. Know? Um, or, uh, you know, this particular food regime, really, you know, limited food regime is going to uh, revolutionize things. So, you know, beware of the quick fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Realize you are different. Do experiment, you know, and, and, and everything's up for grabs. It's how you eat, what you eat, what you do, you know, and we've all got different lifestyles, so we've mm. got to fit it in. Yeah, And sure. it's all changed since COVID anyway, you know, this sort of mixed working, sometimes you're at home, sometimes you're, mm. you know, we've got to find our new way mm. and realize that a lot of people do it differently. And yeah, uh, yeah and it's like, are you a morning person, an evening person? You know, there really are no clear rules now. And I think this is a bit of a challenge for us all because, uh, you know, we're not all doing the same thing. We're not doing the same jobs. We're all mm. uh, very different environments, very different yeah. pressures and stresses. But don't get freaked out if, you know, what you do doesn't work. Just say, well, that just might be me. Mm-hmm. I had a great example. Um, we did this big intermittent fasting study. Mm. So Zoe's, Zoe's got this um, health free health app called the Zoe Health Study app and we've got 80,000 people to download it and, and for the first time do time restricted eating where they were just eating within a 10 hour window and then not eating for 14 hours and amazingly most people managed to do it for at least three weeks but some people find it really hard and I know uh, a couple of my colleagues um, Jonathan Wolf and Sarah Berry who you know, they are the people that were just dreaming of food in that time. They wanted mm. that snack. And they're snackers. They can't really go without a snack. And they found it really tough to do this. They, they're little and often eaters. And uh, it was like the worst thing for them, this experience. Yeah. Whereas I found it really easy. And most other colleagues of mine found it really mm. easy as well. So it's, it's trying to work out what type of eater you are you know are you a fidgeter who likes sort of nibbling lots of yeah. things and that's fine and you maintain you know good health that way but um everyone has to you know find what sort of person they are and it changes you know every teenager doesn't like getting up early in the morning right mm. but as you get older that sort of starts to change mm-hmm. and uh, you know i used to sleep till three in the afternoon i don't know how i did it now but you yeah know, but now i'm you know much more of a morning person mm. And, and the same is true all in our eating habits as well. Menopause, we looked at, changes women's eating habits and, and how they respond to it very, in a very big way as well. Mm. So you can't assume that everything that's been right for you is always going to work. And people know that because as a kid, as a teenager, they could eat anything. And they suddenly get towards 30 and suddenly, oh, you know, I can't do that. I'm yeah. suddenly putting on weight. This is terrible. It's because we're all changing. Mm. Educating people about their bodies and about the changing environment and everything else, I think, is really important. Yeah. 
And it's complicated. Yeah, you know? of course. And, and that's what I try to get across. Food is complicated. Our bodies are complicated. Um, we need to know more about it. And I think in the future, we'll all be using these apps to, to help us. Yeah. And that's what the Zoe app does. It allows you to, you know, pick up foods that you think were healthy, scan it and see what your personal score is. And mm. you know, often, I'm still surprised by some of the things. Yeah. That I pick up because you know you can't retain all that knowledge. Yeah, of course. And before we close out, I just want to you quickly. You mentioned intermittent fasting, and you mentioned skipping back breakfast as a tool. Obviously, this is something that we've been told. Kind of breakfast is the most important meal of the day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I've not necessarily bought it because I work very well on intermittent fasting. I find it makes me less hungry the next day. It makes me less susceptible to kind of grabbing whatever there is. Should we be skipping breakfast? We should all try skipping breakfast. Some people do really well on breakfast, others don't. And what the studies now show, which is contrary to what's on the NHS and government guidelines, is that there's no harm in skipping breakfast. Some people find it really difficult and they overeat at lunch and they get very cranky. Other people, like perhaps you and I, are happy to skip it you know, five times a week. But when there's a nice opportunity or you're in a nice mm. hotel buffet, you know, mm. you're going to say, oh, this is nice, I'll yeah. have this. Studies show that generally your metabolism is improved if you just have two meals a day rather than three or four or five meals a day. Mm. But generally, that, that, it may be because you're just increasing that fasting period. Mm. And, and it, in a way, you could have breakfast if you ended up um, eating your dinner earlier, mm. if you're a real breakfast lover. Yeah. Um, so give it a try though tell everyone you know try it for a week see how you feel and uh, you may want to go on with it there's nothing dangerous about it as we were told and you know and it explains why some people just don't like breakfast mm. most people don't wake up early hungry yeah. only a few people do yeah that's really interesting and our ancestors probably didn't I mean mm. when I was with this African tribe the Hadza um, who are hunter-gatherers still they didn't have a word for breakfast. It didn't exist so as a concept. And mm. nobody ate anything before about 10, 30, 11. Mm. So it's not really in our DNA. I think it's the breakfast cereal manufacturers have uh, created a demand yeah. perfectly yeah. for us to uh, Sweet want things to sit as well, because I'm such a savoury person. Um, and... I, ne- I, I hate a sweet breakfast. You never liked Cocoa Pops then? I mean, I, well, <laughs> specifically, thanks to my parents, we actually weren't allowed anything with sugar, not, it, it, sugar in the first three ingredients. So um, none of that, unless we were in a friend's house, in which case I'd have all of the Cocoa Pops. And feel sick, but I do though, think right? it's actually ended up now with me not necessarily, like I couldn't have something that sweet in the morning. Mm. No, it's, it's interesting. But, you know, it's about how we've, you know, been... As I said in my book, spoon-fed this mm. this stuff that this is normal, and that mm. you're a bad parent if you don't send your kids, you know, to school with a full breakfast, and then now it's a snack, and now yeah. it's a, you know tea time, and yeah, right. You know, so they're massively over mm. over consuming. So yeah, yeah, give it. a People want to do, give it a go out there. Give you know intermittent fasting a go, but if it's not for you, don't worry about it. Yeah. you know, find other ways. Uh, to, to improve your, your health and diet. It's all about empowerment, really. Mm. Realizing you're not just getting some manufacturer's idea of what's good because it's got low calories on it. It's all about you know, giving power back to the individual to make yeah. these choices because these choices really are important. 
not just for you, but also as I go in the book, for the planet as well, yeah. about climate change. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been incredibly interesting. You've turned my world upside down. I will be uh, going and eating a banana as a snack. But thank you so much. It's been incredibly interesting. My pleasure.